Hello and a warm welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr Hannah Moyer, Senior Medical Writer and Moderator for EMJ. And today I am delighted to be bringing you a fascinating discussion as part of a two-part series on fibromyalgia, insights and perspectives from the patient and practitioner. This podcast has been funded by Viatris. Joining me for today's episode, I am honoured to be joined by two experts in the field of rheumatology who will provide their expertise and personal experiences of working and living with fibromyalgia. Both of our guests join us today from the University of Michigan Medical School, Ann Arbor in the USA. First, we have Kevin Banker, a research assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and a member of the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at the University of Michigan. His current research focuses on therapeutic applications of cannabis and psychedelics, where his goal is to rigorously assess appropriate use of these substances and to help address the public health harms caused by their criminalization. He is also a yoga instructor and he himself lives with fibromyalgia. Also joining us today is Professor Dan Claw, who is Professor of Anesthesiology in Internal Medicine of Rheumatology and Psychiatry, also at the University of Michigan. He is Director of the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Centre, and his research is committed to the clinical care and research into the central nervous system. He is an international expert in chronic pain disorders, such as fibromyalgia, where he incorporates a multitude of methods ranging from patient-reported outcomes to functional and chemical neuroimaging, phenotyping, and as such, has been critical in helping elucidate the importance of the central nervous system in chronic pain conditions. Thank you both for joining me today for this discussion with EMJ. In this first episode, we are going to focus on fibromyalgia from the patient perspective. In this, we will establish an understanding of the burden of this condition and consider how fibromyalgia impacts on a person's life, as well as consider the non-pharmaceutical treatment options available to managing this condition. Kevin and Daniel, it is so wonderful to have you join me today. I'm really honoured to have this opportunity to talk to you. I'm really interested in finding out about this personal insight and journey. Um, and today, let's start, let's think about that patient perspective. So I think first off, we need to set the scene for our audience to point out with your permission, Kevin, to discuss that diagnosis of fibromyalgia that you had. Could you just give us a quick insight into your initial journey and that personal experience that led towards your diagnosis? Yeah, so uh, I'm delighted to be here with you as well. And uh, Dan, as always, good to see you um, and chat with you. So um, this initial experience with fibromyalgia, in fact, started out with a lot of unknowns. So unknowns of why pain was starting uh, in my hands and wrists and then moving throughout my body in a way that no one was able to uh understand no one was able to characterize in a way that actually gave me a holistic picture of what was going on and i think the most challenging thing for me beyond these expanding symptom symptoms was the fact that it felt like my body was under siege i was being attacked from all of these different angles uh with pain but also um you know, that affected my sleep, that affected my mood, um, it affected what I could envision 
for myself in the future. And so, you know, that, that went on for about 13 months um, and started actually in 2008. And then in 2009, um, I was chatting with my dad a bit um, and he said, oh, I have this colleague named Dan Claw. Uh, and so I typed up my patient history, uh, put all these things together, including all the different uh, treatment options that I had tried, which include included many different things like chiropractic, um, physical therapy, um, some movement, just a lot of different things, but it, it had never really fit together. Uh, emailed that to Dan. Um, and when we met within about five minutes, he was like, oh, yeah, you have fibromyalgia. We can move from here. Uh, this is a condition that you'll have for life. Um, but here are some ways that we can uh, work with it, including understanding what we know about it, uh, things that we know to be evidence-based that can be effective to work with it. And uh, in many ways, just giving me this information to then start to create a new synthesis of how I might want to engage with my body um, and with my being as I'm trying to figure out uh, what it means to, you know, at that point be a 22 year old living with uh, what I'm told is a, a lifelong chronic pain condition. And how did that make you feel finding out that this was going to be a lifelong burden that you were going to, to have? Um, did that change your mindset in any way? Yes, um, <laughs> as you might expect. So uh, as a as a 22-year-old young man at that point, um, I, I think it certainly was an expectation mismatch for what I had been thinking would be coming in the future. Um, at the same time, it was also a tremendous relief because going through 13 months of not knowing why there is mysterious pain, knowing what might be happening. Um, and then of course, that lack of certainty leading to lots of fear and concern. Um, it, you know, having, having a name was useful. And then not only that, because there was the uh, educational materials that I could go to to understand more about these different approaches that I could use and have a better sense of how to fit them together. It felt like I had a, I, I could put a step and make a step in the right direction. Hmm. And Dan, is, is this a common experience of patients? Uh, do they present to you in this similar manifestation that they've had this difficult journey of um, establishing what it is that's causing this pain, these these burdens. Um, do you find there's a similarity there, or is there a, a disparity amongst patient populations? There's a little bit of difference in the way people present and how they eventually get to the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. But Kevin's story, um, if anything, he got the diagnosis and the care much more rapidly than most people would because. Uh, I don't see patients anymore, and I wouldn't have seen Kevin if it wasn't that I was friends of his parents, quite frankly. Um, so, uh, but I think one of the things that, that was important about hearing Kevin tell the story is the relief he had when I was able to tell him with some confidence 
as a physician or a healthcare provider that I knew what he had and I knew what could be done about that because I that is a extremely familiar experience that I've had over the course of my career as as often I was the first one to diagnose someone with fibromyalgia but I think if you do that with confidence that you know this is what they have and with some sense of assuredness that there's a lot of things that we can do about it. Um, most diseases that adults get are lifelong conditions. We don't cure people of diabetes or hypertension or heart disease or of hardly anything else. And so it's important, I think, in that first and then subsequent encounter with patients to reset their expectations, but in a positive way and say, yeah, you know, yeah, it's it would be better if you didn't have this, but um, people can live very normal lives in spite of having it. And there, there's no better example of like how successful Kevin is as a scientist and as a young father and everything else whilst having fibromyalgia. So, Thanks, Dan. And I think that's really useful to give us an insight to that initial expectation, I guess, towards that treatment. So once you've had that diagnosis, you've had that, that um relief of understanding what it is uh, in terms of um, the burden of the pain. You you have a a name that you can give it. Um, What were your initial expectations for the treatment that you went through? What were the kind of the journey of your treatment? The way that we approached treatment was thinking about uh, two different things. The first was symptom management. And because some of these things had been going on for a long time, the widespread pain, sleep issues, et cetera, having something that could act as a sort of chemical nudge to provide some relief that then allowed me to start implementing some of these other approaches, uh, be they movement. So I started doing yoga, um, thinking more specifically about sleep hygiene, um, and then also knowing that just because there was pain didn't necessarily mean that that pain was dangerous in the sense that it would like worsen an existing injury because I was having it. So that combination of things of getting some amount of symptom relief and then starting to do the work myself and then train my mind to understand, you know, when pain is really like dangerous and harmful versus when it uh, is something that I can uh, effectively work through. I think that was one of the big keys uh, to, you know, start making steps in the right direction. Now, in terms of, you know, things that I've used to manage this uh, and, and work and engage with fibromyalgia over the long term, I mean, the list is very long, um, including going back to things that I didn't necessarily think were working initially, like physical therapy, um, but massage, Uh, yoga. As you said in my introduction, I am a a yoga teacher at this point. Um, Meditation. I now practice Qigong as well. Um, I've been to cognitive behavioral therapy. There's just a long list of things. And with each one of these uh, non-pharmacologic approaches, something that I've really enjoyed about each of them is they kind of help me gain a better understanding of a different piece of myself um, or a different behavior set, or a different thinking pattern, um, or a different set of beliefs that I held that I hadn't really expounded upon internally, that may have been contributing or 
um, playing into some of the symptoms that I had. So it's been actually a, a remarkable um, and fulfilling uh, kind of internal work uh, to, to be able to work, work through these symptoms um, and understand more of where they're coming from and how to effectively engage with them. It's, it's not like masking and numbing and escaping from them. It's what are they actually telling me about my internal experience now? The idea that small and incremental progress is incredibly meaningful. And, you know, I, I felt this myself. It's like one day I woke up and was like, oh, I looked back five years. And if I think back to what I was doing, how I was moving through the world and what was possible then and what I'm doing now. It's not like there is a switch that flipped. And one day I was like, you know, doing headstands. Instead, it was, okay, well, I really just had to make fits and starts and progress. But the trajectory ended up being so positive that like, even though it was slow, it was in the right direction for a long enough time that it's even hard to recognize now where I was um, in terms of, you know, how I was feeling in my body. So you talk about that um, mindset shift and perhaps utilizing some of these approaches, maybe the cognitive behavioral therapy you used was an effective tool for allowing that kind of perception in your mind. Um, how would you advise practitioners or even patients listening to this podcast in terms of how they can maybe think about this approach of is it just pharmacological treatment that's effective or should they also be considering these non-pharmacological approaches and how can they go about approaching that? Yeah, I mean, I think pharmacological approaches are useful, but they will never be enough on their own. There's not going to be a drug you can give somebody and cure fibromyalgia. Um, at least that's my experience my lived experience, as well as my experience talking to many people who have um, fibromyalgia, I really think that um, that framing, that you like, you can use these uh, these drugs for symptom management. Um, again, like as this kind of chemical nudge idea, um, where you help people find this window of relief that they can start to really implement something that they. Um, couldn't do otherwise. Uh, again, be it yoga, be it walking, uh, whatever it might be. Um, that is how I, I typically view drugs at this point. And I think that sets a much healthier expectations uh, uh, for a patient uh, as, as well as the healthcare provider, because then they know, okay, if they prescribe a drug, and then their uh, patient is getting a response. This is an important time to start doing something. And um, then in terms of all of these other different non-pharmacological uh, approaches, I think a lot of that has to do with like what the patient is interested in, what aligns with their values. Um, for example, like I didn't grow up in a religious household um, and I found you know, a lot of, I found myself intrinsically more drawn to things like yoga and meditation, uncertain necessarily why, um, but to have that be something that I knew I wanted to work with um, made it a lot easier to say when Dan and I, you know, had those first conversations, like, okay, that's going to be, that's going to be my first step. 
So I think people need to look inward and get a sense of what they, what that thing that they might want to try is, and then start from that place, especially since there are so many evidence-based options to help work with this. Um, there's just different entry points for different people based on where they've been and what they like. And, and, and if people, if patients have the mindset that, it, you know, they're just going to go for those really big, the cure types of treatments, they, they won't actually engage in the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Cause it's like, well, that's too incremental. How could it be the case that if I, you know, work on my sleep and become more active, you know, that couldn't make me as much better as like surgery. So they'll just keep going until they find a surgeon who will do surgery eventually. But, you know, it, yeah, and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that too, Dan, because it's not like these people don't want to help. It's just you go to a surgeon, they're going to cut because that's their tool. Um, and so it's the same way when thinking about going to other providers as well as then the tools that people build up for themselves. Like if their only tool is the medication cabinet, like the, each of those comes with side effects. Uh in a totally different way than some of these other practices um, or non-pharmacological treatments might. You know, are, are looking for the like total cure, the total, they want to go up and hit that home run and it's gone, it's done. It's, uh, and it's, it doesn't work that way for most types of chronic pain. It's, you know, the, the first time you, you, you go up, you don't get a hit at all, and, but maybe, you know, you, then you finally get a little, but it's incremental um, advances. Yeah. And, and in so doing, then they're missing that critical window that, that we were talking about before, right? Like getting some relief means that there's an opportunity, but if, if somebody is so stuck on needing complete relief that they can't recognize that some relief is a chance to do something different, then that opportunity is lost and it won't likely come back again with that. If, if that opportunity was tried to, provided by a medication, it's lost. It probably won't come back again unless they totally wash out, wait some time and then try it again. Um, so it's, I, I think it's, it's really key to change that expectation um, because otherwise, yeah, it's it, it feels almost like a lost cause. Thanks, Kevin. And can I come to you, Dan, and just ask what would be your advice then for those listening that would like to consider other options or look at that route to take in terms of non-pharmacological treatments? Um, how how should that be approached with with the healthcare provider? I really think people should, um, you know, look at a, a, a list of these non-drug therapies, yoga, tai chi, acupuncture, acupressure, chiropractic manipulation, mindfulness, different types of cognitive behavioral therapy, and and commit that they're going to try several of these treatments that they haven't tried before as part of their treatment. Because each of these treatments has a tendency to work in like maybe one out of three people. So if you're not trying new things, your, your, your chance of getting better, <laughs> I'll, I, I'll always say to patients is your chance of getting better is zero if you do nothing. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of what we have to do as providers is just really keep people motivated to say, you know, we don't know when you're going to find that that next treatment is going to really work well for you. So please keep 
trying because that's how Kevin was describing. Sort of, you build upon your successes with respect to things you find that work. Um, and I love his analogy about the drugs. I told him I love that analogy of a chemical nudge because the drugs rarely are alone are rarely the solution. They do allow you to get people from. Um, they're more like a means to an end than the end. Um, in in with with allowing you to get people to be able to move from you know not they're so tired they can't do anything to you get them sleeping better and all of a sudden they can embrace some things that they couldn't before. But I think that's a great point to wrap up this informative conversation. I think we should hopefully inspire those listening to consider the options that are out there. I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to you both Kevin and Daniel for sharing these experiences and insights with us. I think Kevin, your personal journey really shows how important it is to think about that patient perspective and how your experience and your personal interests and motivations can have a real impact on those treatment approaches and that treatment journeys. So thank you both for joining us today. Um, and that concludes today's episode. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. So I just want to take this moment to thank Dr. Kevin Banker and Professor Daniel Claw for joining us and sharing their insights around fibromyalgia, insights and perspectives from the patient and practitioner with our audience today. If you enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast, this is the first of a two-part series that can be accessed through your preferred podcast platform. These, alongside an informative infographic, can also be accessed by visiting emjreviews.com. In the next episode, we will discuss fibromyalgia from the practitioner's perspective, so I look forward to you joining us again. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.